think the key to look at is all the countries that have had net neutrality rules on the books for five years or more, they have not produced the world's next Google. I mean, that was always the promise. And the policy has not delivered to create new apps or innovation as people expected. So I think if the U.S. is going to look at this, they need to be very careful about how they write rules. It needs to include the entire ecosystem, both the edge and the core. And you can't preference one part of the ecosystem over the other. And then you would have some chance, perhaps, of making a rule that would actually benefit consumers and innovators. Welcome to the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm your host, Chad Reese. On May 16th, the U.S. Senate voted to repeal a Federal Communications Commission rule that was itself a repeal of the FCC's 2015 rule intended to change the way the Internet is regulated. This double repeal is now awaiting sign-off from the House and the President, neither of which seem likely to support it. Still, the legislation has renewed the debate over net neutrality and how policymakers should think about regulating the Internet. Here to unpack those issues a bit are three experts on Internet policy issues. Brent Skorup is a senior research fellow with the Mercatus Center and specializes in technology policy. Welcome to the show, Brent. Thanks for having me. Rosalind Layton is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute who focuses on telecommunications, Internet regulation, and privacy issues. Thanks for joining us, Rosalind. Great to be here. Finally, we have Brendan Bordelin in the studio. Brendan is a tech and cybersecurity reporter with National Journal. Welcome aboard, Brendan. Thanks for having me. So I always like to start these conversations off just by making sure we're on the same page and we're all kind of speaking the same language. So does anybody want to kind of volunteer and help me understand what people mean when they say the phrase net neutrality and why this is such a contentious issue right now? Net neutrality has been, has been a long-running policy debate. Professor Tim Wu, who was at UVA at the time, created the term in 2003, and it refers to basically – non-discrimination rules for internet service providers that most of us receive internet access from, the Verizons, the Comcast, the T-Mobiles. But this debate has has evolved over the years, and it's it's actually an interesting case in coalition building. It's actually, I mean, whereas this used to be a fairly wonky, narrow debate 10 years ago, it's, it's, it's kind of burst into the public scene. You've got large companies on, on, on both sides of this weighing in. The, the FCC has, on, on several occasions now, attempted to enforce some sort of net neutrality principles. They've, they've been struck down twice and, and upheld the most recent time. President Obama actually weighed in on the debate in, in 2014 and, and and called on net neutrality principles enforced by the FCC. And, and that probably is when it became this this mass public issue. When the, when the president weighs in on something, it, it, it attracts <laughs> attention. And, and sure. unfortunately, has has gotten fairly partisan of late. So, yeah, it's it's been 10 almost 15 years, but is now a a mass movement and it deals with internet regulation, free speech and, and a lot of other issues that people get impassioned about. Yeah, and I think the essential components of, of net neutrality, at least as it was put together by the FCC's 2015 Internet Order, which was just overturned by the FCC um in December, and now we have this drama at Congress, was no blocking of um internet content by providers, no pay prioritization of any content, and then no throttling or slowing down of that content. Those are sort of the three main pillars of net neutrality, as it's understood, I think, in, in the policy world, certainly as I think as it's understood in Congress, where there is talk about a bill eventually enshrining um, one or several or maybe all of those principles. I think there's definitely some some debate about which principles would be included or not in a bill. We're probably further than ever from a bill at this point, given the Senate CRA's success and the fact that 
the House is now trying to replicate that success. So, um, you know, I, I think, don't think we're going to have that debate uh, in Congress anytime soon, maybe after November. But uh, those would, be, I think, be the three main principles that, that policy folks think about when they think about net neutrality and what it means. And let me add on that. I, I think very simply, net neutrality, it, it is regulation of the internet. When you study rules around the world, they always have some kind of a prescriptive requirement from an economist perspective, and what it means for, for consumers, at least in the U.S. context, is essentially a price control, insisting that end users pay the full cost of networks. And that's an interesting model, because when we compare it to the history of telecommunications and of networks, we've always had something of what's a two-sided market. Different actors participated in the cost of networks so that the end user didn't have to pay the full cost. And I think that that's the definition that is not shared very much, but it's extremely important because in many respects, it does detract from the user's freedom of choice. It does have First Amendment implications, which, you know, Brett is, can eminently describe. So, you know, that those are it, it's a complicated issue. There's no doubt about that. So maybe we can go to the 2015 rules that that Brent mentioned earlier and that I, I kind of teed up for us that the FCC put in place. From your all's perspective, would you call the 2015 rules from the FCC net neutrality? That is, so Rosalind, do they meet that price control standard that you were saying sort of defines what it looks like internationally? Brendan, do you think the FCC's 2015 rules you know, followed those three pillars of what we think of as net neutrality? Regardless of where this debate was 10 or 15 years ago, the 2015 order is certainly what net neutrality means now, today, to the vast majority of Americans. I don't think that definition is going to change anytime soon. It's really sort of been crystallized into the public consciousness. I mean, you got to remember the the order to overturn those rules got almost 24 million comments at the FCC. Now, there's a big, big debate over that as well, whether those comments are really worthwhile. A, a lot of those comments were apparently driven by bots. A lot of them theoretically had identity <laughs> issues in terms of whether there was identity fraud or something there. So there's a lot of issues with the public comment process of the FCC. But I do think that it shows how much people paid attention to this and, and particularly have sort of identified the 2015 order with the concept of net neutrality. And you see that with all the emails that the advocacy groups send out, the ways that, that the Senate Democrats talked about this when they were pushing the CRA. Restoring those that order is commensurate with restoring net neutrality. I, I think that's definitely the way that, that you know, it, it, we talk about it now in the public consciousness. The, the 2015 rules and the 2015 open internet order is is what people are referring to when they talk about net neutrality. I, my issue with, with the order is that the FCC has always had trouble trying trying to enforce these rules. I mean, they're struck down twice in court for they didn't have the, the authority to enforce them based based on what they claimed as authority. So they had to go to existing laws, and they went to what's called Title II of the Communications Act, which. This is what net neutrality has come to mean. I think aspects of it would not be recognizable to your average net neutrality supporters. So Title II of the Communications Act dates back to the 1934 Communications Act, obviously decades before this net neutrality debate. And and, and this authority brings with it all, all kinds of regulatory baggage. Uh, this this was a regulatory framework for the monopoly AT&T phone network and the monopoly Western Union telegraph network. There's a lot of baggage with it, one, one of which is that during war times, the president gets more control over, over telecommunications, which is what in 2015 the, the FCC said the internet is. The other thing the FCC has always struggled with is that in 1996, Congress and President Bill Clinton passed a law called the Telecommunications Act, which updated the Communications Act. 
in that law, they, they announced this U.S. has this policy that the internet and specifically internet access should be unfettered by federal state regulation. And this is one reason the FCC has always struggled to impose net dry rules is because we, ha- we have this deregulatory statement from Congress, which is still the law. And so net neutrality has always been an odd fit. And this, this is part of why you know, I, I think the 2015 rules don't resemble net neutrality. The, the FCC, because of this odd fit, in court, the, the Obama FCC lawyer was, was asked by a judge because there were, there were some legal issues, asked what the, the FCC lawyer offered that ISPs can block content under the order. This, this is expressly allowed, and there's a lot of reasons for that. But, I mean, this is the core net and charge principle that internet service providers can't block content. And, and you have the Obama FCC volunteering that they can because that, that's the only way to uphold the entire order. And that, that's just a symptom of, of these Title II laws and, and trying to apply this to a network that it was never meant to apply to. And Chad, I would push back that there's some agreement on this term. I mean, it's purposely ambiguous because over time we've seen that its definition changes. I know from working on the Internet Governance Forum, we tried to craft a definition and and we gave up. I mean, we had all kinds of stakeholders and we couldn't come to an agreement. And I think that the statutes in the U.S., they, they don't go into what is net neutrality. It's extreme. It's It's not codified. It's not codified in the in, in the open Internet order as such. So and I think that's on purpose because it can serve a policymakers to to apply, you know, similar to the public interest standard, you know, it, it, it's politically um, expedient at, at the time. So tens, you know, policymakers may use terms such as uh, open internet access and, and similarly ambiguous terms. And so, you know, there that can be that can be helpful depending upon uh, whatever your political objective may, may be. I am kind of curious since Brent, you mentioned the idea of monopoly concerns earlier. And I think that's what most people go to when they talk about net neutrality, at least in my experience. If, if you're not talking to tech experts, the, the number one complaint is always, well, Verizon, Comcast, these ISPs are sort of monopolies, right? So yes, maybe to Rosalind's point, there may be a price control element that economists don't like here. Yes, to Brent's point, there may be a regulatory component that doesn't really fit the way we think of the internet. But don't we have to do something about Comcast and Verizon, if they're the only option you have for the internet in your in your state or city. That was the justification for some of the Republicans who flipped the Senate CRA on net neutrality. Uh, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana specifically said, listen, this comes down to if you trust your ISP or not. You only have one ISP in so many parts of the country. So if you don't trust them, you know, you're out of luck. So I mean, that is just there. there is Republican buy into this idea, at least at a limited level that that ISPs are monopolies in certain part of the country. So I, I think the important thing to say here is that if your problem is monopoly, net neutrality is not the solution. I mean, the, the goal of the, you know, the, the framers of the original net neutrality was to have a single government monopoly for broadband. I mean, their end game would be to have a national broadband network or a networks of networks municipally owned and all run by the FCC. So the goal is not to have multiple different ISPs with different technologies all competing. I mean, that's what internet freedom is about. In fact, it's important we define what's the alternative. You know, if you're concerned about monopoly, you know, that's exactly what you'll get because we had that under Title II with the Ma Bell monopoly for over 50 years, and it was so bad that the Justice Department broke it up. So, you know, that that was specifically what Title II was created to promulgate and and we got monopoly with high prices we were not allowed to attach devices to the network and consumers um, paid much more for long distance when it was removed 
you know, we had an explosion of different kinds of technologies competing for traditional telephone service and long distance. The monopoly point, yeah, I, I would say probably in, in some markets, there, there probably are market power problems and, and monopoly problems. It was it was U.S. and state policy for a long time that you could have one phone company in every locality and, and one cable company every locality, and we're still dealing with the overhang of that. I, I'll note, though, it, it was I saw Pew polling recently, about 24% of internet-using households use mobile only at this point, smartphone only, as oh, a wow. broadband connection, which is 10 percentage points higher than, than two years prior. So all that to say, net, net neutrality is, is not – I mean, a lot, a lot of people see net neutrality as, as a solution to real and perceived uh, monopoly problems, but the, the 2015 rules and net neutrality generally is not about market power or – Monopoly. If 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 that were a case, the the rules would only apply to providers that have market power. But that's not the case. They apply to all internet service providers. There are hundreds in the U.S. Some of these are quite small, you know, WISP providers in, in rural areas that serve twenty households. But the, the rules still apply to these guys. It drives a lot of people, and I think uh, so, some of the competition problems that are out there drives a lot of this. But but to me, we've got other policy tools for that. We have competition law. We have Universal Service Fund, which uh, is a federal program that spends billions of dollars to get broadband into more areas. To me, those are the proper tools. And I just so mentioned as well that I mean that you have new technologies coming online, not just WISP, the you know fixed wireless providers and that kind of thing. But this might be a little bit uh, pie in the sky right now. No pun intended. But SpaceX launching its new constellation of, of internet satellites and and that kind of thing. There, there's new technology coming online that theoretically could break the, the monopoly, I guess the you know, quasi-monopolies, or we, we can argue whether that's an appropriate term or not, but you know, the sort of the stranglehold that ISPs have on certain areas, particularly I think rural areas, there is a lot of talk about that in new technology. So it, it is one of these things where you might pass net neutrality and then find that a lot of the, you know, the competition ends up increasing dramatically in the next few years because of new and emerging tech. Well, the one other thing here, you know, the Obama FCC could have done something to give it more credibility. You want to put common carrier rules onto a, you know, on, onto an economy, you typically would perform a, a market analysis to determine whether there's a monopoly. And that's an important step. They have the, you know, that is codified in statute. They didn't do that. You know, you considered the 4,500 ISPs all similarly situated. You know, it doesn't stand. I mean, you could be able to say, well, where there is a perpetual monopoly, let's apply the rules. But I think it's also bears mention, if you ask typical consumers on the street, they would say, well, net neutrality is about the entire internet. It's about the Facebooks and Googles and Netflixes. Well, don't they block content or throttle content or treat things in discriminatory ways? Why aren't they subject to these kind of rules? And so I think that, you know, now that bloom is off the rose, that it's, you know, only the, uh, that ISPs are what we have to worry about. And I think this is an important time to say, well, have we had policies that unnecessarily reward or punish parts of the ecosystem that advantage one at the expense of the other? And we may end up with new monopolies because we don't allow competition and new entrants or price flexibility or what have you. That's a really interesting point. And I, I think we're kind of running out of time here, but I, I want to ask one kind of final question, leave it a little open-ended. We've talked a little bit about innovation on the ISP services side. I want to flip that and talk about innovation on the policy side. So I know, Brent, you've done some work on state legislature reactions to net neutrality. Rosalind, I know you've got some experience with international examples of regulating the internet. So to the extent that you all have other views on what other types of governments, whether it's, again, state and local governments within the United States, 
or foreign governments. How do other governments approach this issue and what are the lessons we can take away from those examples? Yeah, I mean, you mentioned state regulations. So there, there, there are several states. Now that this is kind of a public concern and the FCC, now now controlled by Republicans, voted to repeal the 2015 uh, net neutrality order, now states are, are taking up net neutrality and internet regulation and, and imposing, um, basically copy and pasting what was in the 2015 rules and, and, and making it state law. I mean, to me, this is concerning for a few reasons. I mean, one, so, I mean, this is the first time states are, are attempting to regulate the internet. Reason for that is that Congress has said the internet should be unfettered by federal and state regulation. They, they haven't done this before. The concerning thing is that it's, it's clear now that net neutrality is common carrier regulation. I mean, this, this is the rules as they've come to be known are, is common carrier regulation. So that means this goes to state PUCs, uh, public utility commissions and, and public service commissions who have not been in this area before, certainly not, not inter- internet regulation. And, and the idea of having possibly dozens of state and local regulators each with their own policies and, and possibly different interpretations is, is concerning. But it's it's a live issue. We'll, we'll see where it goes. And I'll just say as well, you know, insofar as a congressional solution to this is different from the FCC solution, which there's a lot of concern about that because it just ping pongs back and forth with every single administration changing. I do think we're eventually going to get some sort of legislation from the Hill on this. It's probably not going to be legislation that either side of the debate wants, or at least get where they get everything that they want. And it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. But I do think that uh, eventually that's going to happen. And probably, as I said at the beginning, one of those one or more of those three sort of pillars, blocking, throttling, paid prioritization, are probably going to get enshrined in federal law. I guess that would supersede state action on this to a certain extent. And it would depend, I guess, on how sort of thoroughly it, it flushes with the 2015 order and how much states like you know California, whoever ends up passing something like that, is going to be willing to, to bend on those issues. But I do think that's going to happen eventually just because there is – there. I mean, both sides talk about it. Neither side – I think both sides sort of want to – especially the Democrats want to make political hay out of it right now. If they're successful with that, I think we could it could be a very long time before we see a bill because uh, they could just keep making uh, some some good political moves off of it. If not, I think that we can move we could see congressional moves pretty quickly on this. So I would certainly support legislation. I mean, there are 50 countries in the world that have net neutrality legislation, and that's really the only sustainable way to go. The U.S. has been litigating a long time. Other countries have tried it. Chile, for example, they had a similar process. And you finally, you have to have Congress clarify what is the role of the regulator and make it very explicit. There was a, a great example. It's still going in Denmark, even though we have uh, European Union rules, um, was a multi-stakeholder model. Uh, it was quite successful. Uh, we produced during the period that it was in place, produced a lot of innovation. I think the key to look at is all the countries that have had net neutrality rules on the books for five years or more they have not produced the world's next Google. I mean, that was always the promise. And the policy has not delivered to create new apps or innovation as people expected. So I think if the U.S. is going to look at this, they need to be very careful about how they write rules. It needs to include the entire ecosystem, both the edge and the core. And you can't, you know, preference one part of the ecosystem over the other. And then you would have some chance, perhaps, of, of making a a rule that would actually benefit consumers and innovators. Well, I think on that note, we are going to have to say that we have said all we can on this highly contentious issue. We can pat ourselves on the back and say we've clearly addressed net neutrality. Job well done, everybody. We'll wrap up just by kind of quickly going around the table. If you guys want to give our listeners a Twitter handle or a website bio page where they can keep up with your work and continue the conversation, I'll start with you, Brent. 
So a lot of my research is at Mercatus.org, and my Twitter handle is bscorup, B-S-K-O-R-U-P. And Rosalind? Yeah, I would also point you to uh, Mercatus. We had an event uh, uh, featuring Denmark and the solutions that they had brought. Uh, and, and this issue is very interesting discussion with the uh, Danish policymakers. They actually dismantled their telecom regulator and life went on and, and they're the top digital nation in the world. So it's a great story you can check out on Mercatus. I'm at Rosalind Layton, uh, my Twitter handle, and you can also find my blog at AEI.org. Yeah, again, I'm a tech and cybersecurity reporter for National Journal, so um, to cover a lot more than, than just net neutrality, I'm uh, on Twitter at, at Brendan Bordelon, and email is bbordelon at nationaljournal.com if you have any tips or things you want to tell me about what's going on that, that I do not know about, because that's always <laughs> helpful for me. Uh, so thanks. Great. Well, thanks to all of our guests for a great conversation. As always, you can send me your comments, questions, or complaints on Twitter at Chad M. Reese or via email crees at mercatus.gmu.edu. And you can find us at Mercatus's The Bridge. 